HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. And this is our 353rd episode of this series, which is dedicated behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding hospitality publicist who has her own award-winning agency, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to send calendar invites and reminders. Yes, I'm going back to the basics with a very simple yet important tip for both personal and professional plans. We all have calendars and make appointments, but oftentimes we don't think to share our scheduled reminders with the other party, while really it's a no-brainer. Sending a quick calendar invite and reminder the day before will help ensure that no one misses the plans or inconveniences anyone. So be the one to initiate the invite and confirmation. It will be appreciated by all. That's my tip today. Okay, I am so excited to have my guest joining me. It is Gia Vecchio. She is the CEO and founder of Foxglove Communications, a publicity and strategy agency focusing on hospitality, which she founded in 2018 as a solo entrepreneur. And five years later, her company has a footprint and employees in Philadelphia, Delaware, New York, New Orleans, Nashville, and beyond. Box Club's current international portfolio of acclaimed clients includes 
Ace Hotels, award-winning chef and restaurateur Ashley Christensen, Top Chef winner and James Beard award-winning author Gregory Gorday, Ellen Yin's High Street Hospitality Group, Pomegranate Hospitality from Alon and Emily Shia, Sisterly Love Collective, Tales of the Cocktail Foundation, and The Dead Rabbit, just to name a few. Foxglove recently received the PRNet Next Gen Awards 2023 as an emerging leader in PR and communications. Without further ado, hi, Gia. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. I am thrilled to have you on. I've Yeah, your client list and what you've accomplished <laughs> in five years is like beyond. And I just, I love our friendship that we have through our work in the industry. So um, I'm really excited to hear about your story because you're usually, the, well, you're always telling the story of your client. So today is an opportunity to hear your story. And so why don't you take us back a little bit into what what led you into this field and a little more about your background? Absolutely. I like to call it my favorite happy accident. So I actually went to school for psychology. And then you start thinking about your master's and then you have to have really meaningful work experience for a really prestigious master's program. So it was a little bit of a chicken egg moment. And then a friend of mine said, you know, you really love writing. You're good with words. In the interim, I know this man named Phil Baltz, and he owns his own agency called Baltz and & Company, and he's looking for an assistant, and he's never had one before. And she's like, you know, I don't think it's it's the gig for you for the long term, but I think it'll be a foot in the door, and once you get in there, you might feel differently about what you want to do. And she was dead right. Um, so I was Phil's first ever assistant, and after two months where I will say I felt really guilty. I was completely <laughs> underutilized um, because he's an incredibly self-sufficient leader. So I think he sensed that I would be up for more and doing more. I used to go over to the intern's corner and be like, can I help you guys? Like, are there any assignments? <laughs> or go to the account leads and say, if you have any projects, I'll take them. So um, he saw that. And then he started putting me on some of the more corporate accounts. So I worked on Chipotle and Allclad and, and Williams-Sonoma. And occasionally I'd get to help out with a more independent restaurant opening or a cookbook launch and got to help on Marcus Samuelson's memoir. And that was kind of the light bulb moment for me about what side of hospitality PR that, that I was deeply passionate about. Um, and then from there, I went to the door and I was a vice president overseeing several food and beverage accounts for them across New York, Chicago, and New Orleans. And from there, I ended up moving to Philly. And in the move to Philly, I totally deviated away from F&B PR. There just wasn't an agency in Philly at the time that was headquartered there, but doing it on the national scale that I was used to from my New York background. So I went to an agency called 160 Over 90, and they specialized in higher ed and sports teams, but it was so much more than PR. It was a full-service um, ad and creative agency. So hype videos and commercials that would be used for the Super Bowl, high scale event production and activation. It was just a totally different world from what I was used to. Um, and then naturally, you know, you get bit by the hospitality bug, which I think so many of us in this industry can attest to. And I missed it. So that was really the full circle moment where as wonderful as being at 160 over 90 wasn't as eye-opening as it was. I knew I had to get myself back to hospitality. Wow. 
That's, you know, fun fact is I started my agency in 2003, a few years before you, but um, I have a tie-in with Philip Baltz because I remember I met him when he was, I think the company was Kratz and Company before he started on his own. And I just, I was doing some volunteer work there. A friend of mine had was working there and, um, and she's like, you should talk to Phil because I was trying to figure out my career. And this is back in like 1998 or 99. And I just remember talking to him and him like advising me and he was so nice. And he kind of, he kind of, you know, taught me or, you know, gave me insight into what a career in hospitality PR could be. So it's um, full cir- full circle to go back to Philip Baltz. <laughs> Tiniest of worlds. And honestly, yeah. he's stayed a mentor. A few months ago, I even called him. And when you feel like you're you're hitting a wall on something, I know that I could, I was like, hey, do you know, if you have time to talk at some point, let's talk. And he immediately was like, well, I'm just sitting at my desk, like, call me. And it was just, you know, it's really great to have that relationship over a decade later. Um, and, and he's just really good about that, about being very open and, and honest with people. And I think really believes in people who have come from his agency and go on to do their own thing, which, you know, isn't always the, the case in PR and in F&B PR. Sometimes when you leave, it's not, you don't have that warm and fuzzy relationship. And to have that a decade later, I feel very lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm glad we're giving him a big shout out because he deserves it. He has a wonderful agency now and and is so supportive of other people in the industry. So totally. Um, yeah. Uh, so so when did you decide that you wanted to open your own agency and, and just go for it? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. So I was a, a year into being at 160 over 90 and my role there was so different. Um They had a PR role that they were looking to fill and it was before I could move. So that role was taken and they were like, but you know, we think that you have something that like works for us and and we see growth potential here. Would you come on to our new business team? And I had never been in biz dev before. Like, of course, at other agencies, you come in, you help on the proposal process, you make the deck. It was always in a very ancillary way. And they were like, you would be in that department. And this is, you know, a massive agency, 200 plus people in their Philly headquarters alone. And that was the first time that I really had confidence in myself and not just knowing I could do the job, but that I could sell the job. So to me, that was kind of a moment where I was like, you know, I've spent all these years working for other people. And I realized how confident I could be in selling, you know, a new logo to a president of a university And that felt unnatural in some ways. The idea of doing it for the industry I love almost felt like a no-brainer in that moment. Um, But I was really, I never thought of myself as becoming an entrepreneur. So it was really like a toe dip in the water where I was like, you know, I have some time. I could take on one or two freelance projects. And I did that. And within one month, it became five projects. And I was working two full-time jobs and realized that, I had to to make a decision, and then that's really just how Foxglove started. Yeah, and I know it's incredible to see from there to where you are today, because I yeah I rattled off a 
a few of the clients you're working with and you just, you have such an incredible roster of chefs and restaurants and beyond and events that you're working with. So at the beginning, who were, who were some of your first clients? Was it, was it Tales of the Cocktail or was it? You're exactly right. They were actually the second client we ever had was Tales of the Cocktail Foundation when new leadership came in and they converted it to a full 501c3 nonprofit. And for anybody who doesn't know their marquee event every year, is Tales of the Cocktail Festival, which is the world's largest cocktail conference. So not only were we like, okay, we're starting an agency, but the second client ever was an international one um, of a very significant scale. They're huge. And I remember my first year at the conference, there were 300 credentialed media guests and one of me. So I was wildly outnumbered. And, And, you know, they do 400 events in the course of a week. And they were our second ever client. And five years later, we're still their agency of record. Um, Our third ever client was Neil Bodenheimer, who also happens to be on the board of directors for Tales, but in and of his own right, he owns several businesses, Cure, which won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Bar Program. He has Canaan Table, Vows and Peychaud's, those are all in in New Orleans, and then he has Dauphine's in Washington, D.C., and he was our third client, and now he's officiating my wedding this June. So I think I feel very, very lucky that we, you know, the clients and the relationships we have have turned out to be really long-term relationships. Yeah, that says a lot. I mean, because I think also as, you know, doing, having someone who I do PR myself with with restaurants and chefs, and and it's not, I mean, it's it's not, not everyone can maintain for different reasons to have a publicist, um, on, uh, you know, representing them, but you, you've had, you have a lot of really longstanding relationships, which is, I think, amazing and impressive. So how, I mean, how, like, do you, do you, do you have a reason or, you know, is there a reason you feel that most of your clients are staying on board for so long? Like what's your, what's your, your secret? It's a great question. And I'll caveat it by saying, you know, not every project is that way, but I do think we have a retention rate that I'm really proud of. And and like you said, there are a lot of reasons sometimes why projects don't stay on longer. Sometimes they really just need an opening campaign or they have an event or a cookbook launch or a very specific thing that needs to be pushed. But in a lot of instances, I think it's because we are still fairly small in the scheme of things. We're 10 people. And we've been in it for five years, but I think that because we're small and because we really pride ourselves on on focusing on indie restaurants and, and very independent brands and operators, that you're growing with them. So I think there's like, that's the magic in it for us is they're seeing our team grow and we're seeing their footprint grow. And when we started working with Niels, you know, Val's didn't exist, Peychaud's didn't exist, Dauphine's didn't exist. So like in the span of those five years, so much ended up changing and blossoming for his business as it did ours. So in some ways, I think that is a very deep bonding experience. I mean, the only other thing I can credit it to is that we've always been just really honest and transparent with clients. And I think that's, you know, so much of the key to being successful in in PR is having that really open and trusting relationship. So yeah, yeah, I feel lucky. Yeah, no, it it says a lot about you and 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 how you work and your relationships and 
And how are you, so how are you managing a team now of 10? Like, how does that work? I mean, <laughs> <Between all these laughs> <clients>. <laughs> thank, thank goodness we brought in an amazing vice president and her name is Andrea. And prior to this, she was at Wagstaff, which is a much larger agency than we are. And she was there for almost two decades. So having somebody that you also feel like you're learning from has been a really new experience for me as an owner um, where you have somebody coming in who has a breadth and depth of experience and knowledge that is ancillary and so different to yours. And, you know, she was a managing director and in many ways oversaw a team that was double our size. And I think where she really thrives is that mentorship and team management component. And it really balances us out. You know, I love the team aspect and the management and mentoring of what we do. But I also really love the pitching. Like I love the core functions of being a publicist, of landing the piece uh, and strategizing with the clients. So uh, there's, it's definitely valuable to have somebody that brings the skills to the table that you don't have. And I remember that Neil Bodenheimer actually told me probably the first month I started my company, he said, the only advice I'm going to give you in this moment as a business owner is figure out right away the things that you don't like doing or the things that you're not good at and don't see yourself really spending the time to get better at and hire for those things. So she's really been the person that fills in all the gaps. That's a, that's gonna, I haven't, I don't believe I've used that tip in my PR tips and that, that is a great one. <laughs> good, good. Feel free to take it. I'm sure <laughs> I will give credit where credit is due, but <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that's awesome. And well, speaking, I, I was thinking, let, let me, let me ask you, cause I have two questions from past episodes because we had a little rescheduling from my past guests and they're both great questions. And one of them is from David Kinch, who I believe worked with Andrea, yes. um, with Wagstaff for a while. So we have that connection. Um, so he was my guest in episode 350, and for people who don't know, he's the chef and owner of Manresa and Manresa Bread and the Bywater and Mentone in California, and he recently closed Manresa after a 20-year run, which is incredible. Um, so his question is, what is going to be the future of restaurant PR and marketing? He went on to – he talked about how personally he thinks – there is a glut of the chef as personality when re really it's about the restaurant and restaurant experience and not any direct interaction with the chef. Um, is there going to be a shift in the to emphasize more on the restaurant as opposed to the marketability of the of the particular chef? He did note that chefs who have multiple restaurants, that that's a common thread, and he understood that, but he's basically talking about this the, the cult of personality with chefs is out of control, he said. So <laughs> um, what do you, what do you, what's your take on all this? Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's a shift that's starting to happen and I don't think we're quite there yet. And I'll also caveat that by saying I completely agree with his assessment. And I think he's always done a really tremendous job of saying what many of us are thinking quietly about chef worship hitting this fever pitch in the media, especially when it comes to the awards and the accolades. Um, 
And I'm really grateful to him for that because obviously as a publicist, you, you know, you're always trying to tread that balance between what the media needs and what the clients want. And it's always a very delicate ecosystem. Um, but I will say for us, our agency is placing a really dedicated emphasis on trying to shift the narrative to be more about the team, about about how restaurateurs are also reinventing the model of what a restaurant is today. You have spots like Noma saying this isn't sustainable. And then we have, you know, mom and pop style restaurants that we work with that are indie and small, and they're subsidizing mental health benefits for their teams. They're offering 401k programs. They're offering paid parental leave. So they're, they're figuring out how to make it more sustainable because they're prioritizing that. So those are the stories that I personally want to tell. And I think that media has become much more receptive to telling those stories, especially since the pandemic. I think there was just that wake up call that the decimation that occurred to restaurants over the pandemic, it's not that we're all out of the woods, like it's going to take years for restaurants to feel out of the woods. And it's kind of this shift in the narrative too, from the idea of the word pivot to the idea of the word reinvention and what is a more sustainable model. And you really can't talk about that without zooming out from the chef and talking about the team. So I think it's happening. I don't think we're there yet. And I hope that we get there. Yeah, I told David you'd have a really great answer for that. <laughs> I like that he doesn't throw a softball question either. I appreciate no, that about him. No. And of course, my other question isn't a softball one either. Um, <laughs> so on episode 352, I had on Robert Simonson, who I also know you know, he's a writer about cocktails, spirits, bars, and bartenders for the New York Times. He's also the creator and author of the Substack newsletter, The Mix with Robert Simonson, and he's the author of several books. So he wants to know, how do you balance the needs and demands of the client with the needs and demands of the media people that you're dealing with? Oh, I love Robert so much. He's actually <laughs> the first writer that... Um, I ever worked with on a long form New York Times piece. So I, I will always think of Robert as being that person who was receptive to the 21 year old pitch, which <laughs> doesn't always happen. So um, I'm grateful that he asked this question, because honestly, it's where we spend most of our time as publicists. I see it in particular as an opportunity and a challenge. Um, our approach and, and somewhat to the extent that we differentiate ourselves as an agency this way is that we bill ourselves as being overly transparent in almost every new business deck that we do when we say, okay, why hire us? One of the bullet points in there is that like we don't blow smoke. We're not going to stray from what a client's values are, but we're also going to tell it to you like it is. And I think that also goes back to your questions of why do the relationships last for so long? And I, I think there's immense value in that that often goes unsaid. Um, but a lot of clients are really helping us bridge that gap for them to actually help them understand what makes a story sell. Where does it fit? How does it all work? And I think that the best clients are the ones who know that they're hiring an outside expert to um, help educate them a bit in, in the ways that it works and help them know the things that they don't because they're focused on running their own successful businesses. So, I mean, if a client really wants to get a specific outlet to cover a hyper-specific angle, and, and that's a no, you know, we've really built up these long-term relationships where I feel very comfortable going to that writer, editor, and getting the why behind the no. So when you're able to say it's, a, it, you know, no, it's not a no, it's a not right now, or it's a no because X, Y, Z, I think that really helps them understand 
you know, the different needs that the media has, where it converges with their own needs and where it diverges with their needs. But I've seen that dance happen before, um, where a publicist doesn't want to diminish the client's hope for that dream piece. And, and then it adds pressure for them. Uh, the client is holding on to this hope that it's going to happen. It's really a disservice to every party involved. So our whole philosophy is if you can get that, get ahead of that from the jump and manage that expectation really thoughtfully and, and with compassion that everybody is all the better for it. So sometimes our answer is just that you need to build to that story, that other things need to happen and more foundation needs to be laid before we can get to the dream piece. So we'll never say we're dream crushers, but I think being um, really realistic and transparent is is just the best you can do for everyone involved. Ah, so excellent. Yeah, really, really great. What would you say is um, with, I don't know, with PR, like, do you feel that like the biggest misconceptions about PR from a client or media standpoint? Do you, do you think, and do you think, I don't know, do you think perception of PR has changed also over the years? And I, you kind of touched on this. So, but. I still think it's a dirty word to a lot of people. <laughs> I <think that. laughs> I, and I mean, in some instances, rightfully so, but I think for clients, the misconceptions I see is that they think that PR has a lot more control than it does. They think that you know, we decide their fate of getting a James Beard award or a really positive New York Times review. And, you know, that again, that education process and showing where our jobs start and where they end and and what exactly it is that we do and why and how is a big part of that puzzle. Um, on the media side, I wouldn't say that it's so much misconceptions. Maybe it's more of generalizations where when you think about some of these writers and, and you get pitched Sherry for guests all the time, you know, they're getting upwards of a hundred, 200 plus pitches in a day. And they're seeing some of the worst examples, right? They're seeing the mass blast, the PR newswire, um, pieces that just get sent out the mail merges where their names are wrong pieces that have nothing to, you know, pitch ideas that have nothing to do with their beat, their column, anything they've ever covered. So in a lot of ways, I get it. How much of that volume can you handle and, and not want to put, publicists in a very specific bucket, but I think that the media that we most enjoy working with and that finds the relationship really valuable with us understands that there, there's a crop of PR that really does care, that are actively subscribing to, reading, devouring because we care about it, the things that they're writing, producing, editing. Um, and I think that when that comes through, they're much more receptive to being pitched and trusting trusting the publicist. But I think that it is on PR to really build that trust with the writer. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all that. And it has been interesting for me now being on both sides and being a publicist, but getting pitched for my podcast and and seeing how publicists um, work. And, and yeah, sometimes I see the stuff that in the past years... Uh, media has has told me about or mistakes or things that that publicists do or just like not being familiar with the format of my show or, or pitching something that just doesn't make sense um and it can be a little overwhelming too I have to say with with getting pitched and I'm not getting pitched as much as as you said these like major outlets and, and writers are so established so um I've definitely developed more of an understanding myself just personally seeing it um 
but I, as also as a publicist, I mean, I know how hard it is and, and how hard we work and how our intentions are, you know, we mean well and, uh, and want to do the best for our clients. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it's, um, it's a hard, I think, I think PR still, yes, we still don't have, the, I don't know, we get a little <laughs> bit of a bad rap for, even though we're fabulous people. Reputation managers with a bad reputation. I would say my one other misconception that I have to say is sometimes the writer feels that they don't need the PR person, that they just want to go direct to the source, that the PR person doesn't add value. And I would actually say that's one of the bigger mistakes that I've seen because in all of those, in most of those instances, you're not getting the answers you want in time, especially if it's a chef. Like you're, you're lucky if you even get the email back, but there have been times where somebody goes direct to a client and then they ultimately get looped in with us. And they're like, I didn't even realize that aspect of the story. Like X client didn't mention it. And that's wonderful. Um, and you realize that all the clients are so busy running their own businesses. And we know how hard chefs and bar owners and they're all working and, you know, tremendous and insane hours. So the idea of having that person there that understands the difference between a media deadline and the reality of a restaurateur is a really meaningful gap to bridge. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all very, very true. And, um, and publicists are, I mean, I, with my show, I find it extremely helpful and wonderful to work with. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, and, and we're, and we're, and this also, for me, I feel could be also a misconception is for the most part, I mean, we're extremely supportive of each other and helpful to each other. And I love that we have our own little community. And, um, and it's really nice, because I always say, I think there's enough work for all of us to go around and we can all just support each other. So um before we take a break, what, uh, one more question, like, where do you see, where, like, do you have a, I shouldn't ask this because I don't have a plan for myself, but do you have a plan or like, you know, where you see the company going? Do you want to grow into a, a Wagstaff Baltz? Well, Baltz isn't even that large anymore, but they were pretty big at one point, but like, do you want to grow into a big agency? Do you like being the size you're at now? Like where, what are you thinking these days? So it's, it's really funny you ask that because when I mentioned that I'd called Bill last a few months ago for advice, that was really the core of the question that was plaguing me was how do you know when it's the right size? How do you know when it's too big? And, and how do you know when you should continue to scale? And um, his answer, which at the time I was like, oh, I don't know if this got me where I needed it to get me, but it was that you would know and to trust your instinct. And I think he's a very instinct-led leader. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm trying to become a very instinct-led leader. But I think for us, I love the family feel of our team, even though everybody is remote when we're in the same cities for client events, like everybody wants to be spending time together, even in the free time and outside of the obligations, like our team genuinely loves each other and they all click so well. And that culture piece is really important to us. We also really want to run the kind of company that I've wanted to work for. Like we are able to offer a 401k, which I've, you know, I've been at companies double our size that weren't able to offer that benefit to their team. So that's a huge pride point for us this year. We're figuring out how to add a paid parental leave program. So for me, it's like, I don't want to scale past the point of 
those benefits not being tenable for the entire team or, or not being able to have a culture that still feels so familial. So I don't have an exact cap on it, but I think that in, in keeping with what Phil said, I'll know when it starts to feel like we're straying away from being able to scale and keep the integrity of what we do. Um, so yeah, I mean, growth, absolutely. I want to grow. Could I see us becoming double the size we are now? Sure. But I don't think we'll ever get remotely close to the ad agency that I worked for that had 200 plus people that ended up getting acquired by Endeavor Global Marketing. Like, I don't think that's in the cards for us and that's okay. But um, yeah, and I think that the team helps us author that growth. We do, you know, company retreat annually, but we do quarterly um, surveys that are anonymous to the entire team to really find out what people are passionate about, what kinds of clients should we chase getting more of, what what are the challenges they're feeling? What do they want to see as, as growth areas for us? So I like that it's not, even though I'm a sole entrepreneur, I like that it's not identified by a committee as one. Awesome. And on that note, let's take a little break and we will come back. We will play my speed round. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet? And like, why is this cheese so expensive? And can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Gia Vecchio. She's the CEO and founder of Foxglove Communications, a publicity and strategy agency focusing on hospitality. She has people based in Philadelphia, New Orleans, Nashville, New York City, and beyond. So, Gia, it's time for my speed round. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Born ready. Okay, so what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Fun indeed. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant. Oh, this is rough. I should say eat in because my fiance is a chef and a very talented one, but eat out because there's no mess and we have children and a night off is really nice. Yes, and adorable children must, Thank you. must say. Definitely <laughs> and eat out. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and talent at home, for sure. Okay. Um, indoor dining or alfresco dining? Indoor dining. It's never as cozy as I want it to be outdoors. Even with the heaters, it's just, it's, yeah, indoors are bust. Okay. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte, always. Small plates or large plates? Small plates, but lots of them. (laughs) Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, my lanta. Tipping. (laughs) (laughs) That one always gets a fun or interesting response. Okay, a few more. Jazz Fest or Mardi Gras? Jazz Fest. Someone who's spent some time in, in New Orleans, my favorite favorite city. My favorite. Jazz Fest is more for the locals and, and Mardi Gras is more for yeah. everyone else. Yeah, I guess I should have tails in there too to compare, but <laughs> that would be like picking my favorite child, you know? <laughs> okay, how about trains, planes, or automobiles? <laughs> oh, definitely a train. Trains are relaxing and therapeutic. Yeah, for people who don't know why I asked that, it's because Gia, Gia commutes a lot in a, in, in a fabulous way. Too much. But, you know, there's something about the Amtrak where you can pretend that you're always on the quiet car, even when you're not. So you can yeah. skip a few hours of doing calls. Yeah, I like that's, I that's my secret. <laughs> yeah, I don't take trains that much. But but when I do, I, I love that as the Amtrak's great to get down to Philly or elsewhere. It's It's awesome. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan, Brooklyn, Philly, New Orleans, anywhere else in the world. Oh, <laughs> that's so hard. All right, Brooklyn, because I'm from there and I grew up in Bensonhurst, but it's neck and neck with New Orleans. Like it's nearly a tie. Okay, I'll take it. I think that's that's good reasoning. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Okay, that's the game. That was fun. I love that game. That was really fun. (laughs) Thanks. So, okay, for industry news, uh, I just picked out an article that was a publication called The Spoon, and it's entitled, David Chang's Pantry Essentials Brand Momofuku Goods Raises $17.5 Million, and this was by Michael Wolf. Um, This came out, uh, I don't know, towards, I think more towards last week, but... um, I thought it was interesting. I mean, to, we're seeing this a lot with chefs kind of moving into having having brands and packaged goods. And David Chang is everyone. I mean, I'm sure knows David Chang, leader chef with his Momofuku. And and this is, I mean, that's a lot of money he raised. And it's like he's really growing this Um his his packaged goods, and I think it it happened. The you know the growth through the pandemic, where you know where people are doing more home cooking. I mean, absolutely. The, the most interesting part of the article to me, and it's probably due in no small part to the timing, because they mentioned in April 2020 he introduced the um, spicy add to everything sauce. And it had a 20,000 person long waiting list. And anybody who knows David Chang knows he's very good about creating demand. And um, his restaurants have always had that level of demand. And I'm sure the pandemic, everybody cooking at home only skyrocketed the demand for this product even more. Um, but when you think of it through the lens of marketing, which is so often just the way we're wired to think of it, 
it's brilliant. And I think we're going to see more chefs trying to figure out how to create the same cult-like level of demand that there is for reservations for products. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I have his, um, the chili crunch. I bought that. Uh, I just was, you know, he's at Whole Foods. I saw it there and I got it. And I, it's fun to add, add to some dishes when, when I'm eating at home, which isn't that often, but, (laughs) um, but, um, yeah, he's absolutely, um, has always had a demand at his restaurants and he has a a following for his products. And also I just, to note at the end of this article talked about how the Omsum brand is, is, is growing as well. And this is, they have a Asian meal starter CPG business, and this is by a sister team. And just to note also this, they were involved. um, They had their, their money in um, Silicon Valley bank. And I saw there was, I saw an Instagram last week. I mean, they had all these posts going on. They were very concerned that they weren't going to, they were losing, you know, their funds, but I, you know, jump to the to end of that story, their money is fine. They're going to be okay. But it was a little bit of a, you know, small business scare. Um, and I know Omsum is a very popular brand as well. I've seen, you know, lots of industry friends love it. Absolutely. I mean, what they've done is so brilliant. And the fact that it's two sisters and you're really rooting for them. And, you know, we're going to continue to see more proliferation of the chef-backed products, but their story, I think, has inspired so many people because it does feel so homegrown, so deeply personal to their heritage. Um, and, and truly that magic of the small business is there. And I think the fact that the vulnerability is there too, where you're hearing about, you know, these scary moments of being a small business owner and that will it or will it not work out? And it's really great that they seem to be prevailing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's very cool. It's cool. And I, I'm, you know, excited to see what other products come in the market and small businesses that might grow into empires. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's, that's the news this week. And okay, so for my solo dining experience, I have another Los Angeles experience I'm going to share. And this week, it's at Mariscos Jalisco. So here's the rundown. The location, 3040 East Olympic Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, in the Boyle Heights neighborhood. The concept, so this is a no-frills, long-standing food truck serving Mexican seafood small plates. It was founded in 2002. The chef and owner is Raul Ortega. Why'd I go? Well, I was out in LA and I always feel you gotta you gotta have some good tacos when you're on the West Coast out there. And my friend Mark Rizzotti from Shake Shack recommended this place and I had heard of it. I I'd know, known about it, but I had never been. So I, I made it a mission to go. And so my experience on one afternoon, late afternoon, I I I found this truck on the side of the street. Um there was no line because it was kind of an off hour. It was like three, four o'clock. Uh, there were a few people there waiting for orders, but I there was there were two people in the truck, one taking orders and one cooking. And lovely woman 
help me decide what to get. And I ordered, I waited about 10 minutes for my order. And then um, it came in to go containers, but I ended up sitting on a little bench along the side um, by the truck and just eating outside because it was, the sun came out. It was first, it was raining in LA when I got there, but it was like finally a nice day. So um, I ate outside. And um, so what did I get? I got two tacos de camarón, and that's what they're known for. These are crispy, deep-fried shrimp tacos in a white corn tortilla topped with avocado and a unique tomato and cabbage sauce or salsa. And then I also got the Poseidon tostada, which is an homage to the god of the sea. So it's a seafood tostada. It's a crispy corn tortilla, and it's topped with fresh shrimp ceviche, octopus, and spicy shrimp agua chile plus avocado. So my take, well, let me just tell you, these shrimp tacos, like, make them a destination for yourself. Um, Outstanding. I mean, it's a deep fried taco, but it's just the whole combo is just wonderful and and very filling, too. I mean, I got two tacos, but they were almost only... I think one probably I would have wished I had two, but they were they were pretty filling for tacos. Um, and then I had I had the tostada, which was also lovely. It was actually it had a good amount of heat from the spicy salsa, and had a really good ample amount of octopus on top and shrimp and avocado. And I I made a little dent in it, but I it was big. It was a big portion. So, but I'm glad I tried it too. Um, but I definitely say if you go there, like the shrimp tacos um, are a must. And then anything else, the menu is in. It's only about ten items, and it's all seafood based uh, Mexican fare. So I think I think you can't really go wrong. The ambiance. So it's a street side food truck on a pretty main road. So it's, you know, you're just, luckily it was a nice day. So it's, um, you're just going, you're going for the food. That's the ambiance. Perfect for satisfying your taco fix. Interesting tidbit. So this truck is inspired by a little town called San Juan de los Lagos in Mexico and a passion for a different type of seafood. And they have a few other locations in LA they're in downtown LA, Pomona, and West LA mid-city. So if you don't want to go to this location, you can find them elsewhere. Personal fun fact. So I just have to give a shout out to all these awesome, other awesome meals I had in LA because I'm not going to be able to talk about them. On, uh, do all my, they weren't all solo, but um, I'm not going to have enough shows to tell you about them. So here we go. I went to Anajak Thai for Thai Taco Tuesday, and that I went with Mark Rosati and his wife, Laura, and my friend, Carol Chin, and that was amazing. I met the chef, Justin, a uh, fabulous meal. Uh, I went to Antico Novo with my friend, Amy, that amazing Italian. I also went to Horses, AOC in Brentwood, which is Suzanne Goins restaurant, and she's in my upcoming book, Chef Wise. I went to Camphor, Republic, Egg Tuck, Courage Bagels, Mother Wolf, Destroyer, Justa, Ensoto, and Anaka. I tried this plant-based ice cream called a Wan that my friend Aaron Arezby told me to try. It was fantastic. And, of course, I did In-N-Out drive through one night. So, yes, I ate well for a week in L.A. Well, it wasn't a whole week, but you guys kind of know how I roll at this point. Okay. The cost was $17 and change, cash only. That's including tax, not including gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is Mariscos Jaliscos, Mariscos Jaliscos.net and Instagram Mariscos Jaliscos. There you go. How was that?
<laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, I know this would totally diminish the point of it being solo travel, but I need to start traveling with you. <laughs> you do. I, I covered not, so much ground. I'm not anti the friend or or companion travel. I'm really not. I I but I also, you know, I just go because why not? Yes. So that sounds dreamy. Yeah. And you know what? As solo, because when I think back all the places I went, like um, as a solo person, I just always feel I have more time to do that because when you're by yourself, you just don't linger as long at a, at a restaurant and you, you kind of, and also I can make these decisions on the fly of being like, I'm going to go here. <laughs> and there's no one else's dining itinerary to please but your own. So you can spend that added time on research and really get into so many spots. You actually were my inspiration when I took my first solo trip to Paris and London. So I have you to thank. Uh, amazing. And I remember seeing your posts, for, especially from Paris. And it just you, you were so... You just were glowing, you know? It was amazing. It's liberating to travel by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I people people think people who haven't experienced it a lot of times don't realize how amazing it is. So, um try it out sometime if uh it's not scary, it's actually really fun. Okay. So, it's time for the final question. My next guest is Chip Wade. He is the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, which was founded by Danny Meyer with the opening of Union Square Cafe in 1985 and now extends beyond the walls of its eateries, offering event services, partnerships, and business development. Chip, I believe, was the president and COO starting in 2019, and he became CEO in 2022. Super excited to chat with him. So Gia, can you please ask a question for Chip? Absolutely. I mean, well, one, it's an honor to get to ask Chip a question. Um, we work with Union Square Hospitality Group, but on a few beverage projects. So uh, cool. not not super directly with Chip, but I've read many of his interviews and he continually cites um, Jerry Fernandez, who is the founder of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance as a long-term mentor of his and that Jerry's advice has really stuck with him over the years. So as a business owner myself, I feel like this is the tricky point, seeking out a mentorship now when you've reached the level of ownership and how much you know, how much more natural it felt at the inception of my career when you have people that you're directly reporting into who are really invested in your growth and promotion within the company. So I'm curious what advice he would have for business owners who are seeking out mentors at this stage in their career. And then it's a two-part question. The second part of the question is, is how would he describe the shift from being a mentee to now having what I have to presume as many people who view him as a mentor? Great questions. I will find out what he has to say. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to talking with him. I, I, um, I don't know his whole background, and um, it will be interesting to hear and see how he answers your questions. So thank you. And that's the show. <laughs> Flew by. Um, you are a rock star. That's my summary of you. And um, I wish you all the best with thank everything you. you're doing with your team, with your clients. I can't wait to see where you take your company and – and um, yeah, and I hope to see you in person soon as well. 
Thank you. And I wouldn't be a publicist if I didn't say congratulations on your upcoming book and that everybody listening needs to get a copy of ChefWise and that they can pre-order it. Um, so congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. I'm so happy for you. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about it. And actually, I had, I was going to make a, I wanted to add to that because we are working together on a, a little event, which I'm very excited about. Um, Gia works with Sisterly Love Collective in Philadelphia, and we are planning to do a book panel talk coming up on April 16th in Philadelphia at the study at University City. And this is taking place the same time or leading into the Philly Chef Conference, which we're affiliated with. And um, it's a complimentary event. Anyone can attend. And I'm going to do a little read reading from the book and then interview a couple of amazing chefs and restaurateurs who are based in Philly. And um, Gia is a is a big reason why why I'm doing this event. So thank you. <laughs> That's so kind. I mean, the Chef Conference is truly it's my favorite conference of the year. Um, there's still tickets on sale for all the programming. So I feel like everybody listening to this show would be super into the conference and just the caliber of chefs and restaurateurs and media who come out to speak for it is really just unparalleled. But um, this event, I think, is going to be so special. And, and for anybody who doesn't know, Sisterly Love really focuses on the woman of Philadelphia's hospitality industry. So seeing you uplift and support, you know, it's not just the household names. It's a lot of emerging talent in this market. And I, I think that's something really special about you in this book is that it's not just all the super celebrity chef names. You're super invested in finding people who are emerging in their career, too. So it's going to be very special. Thank you so much. And and yes, Omar Tate is is in ChefWise and I know you work with him. And Sybil, am I saying how do you pronounce her last name? Yes. Tate. So Sybil Saint Odd Tate no, is, is a panelist, which is yeah. huge. And they've both been on my podcast too. I just sometimes I see her name and I'm always I, I I'm afraid I'm gonna say it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> but um yeah, and 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 I'm glad, yeah, Mike Trout, who founded the runs the Philly Chef Conference is is awesome. He's been a, on my, this podcast before and um, I'm planning to stay and go to the Philly Chef Conference on Monday and um, it's always it's always amazing and he has an incredible lineup. So anyone who can get out to Philly, um, please join us. It will be, it will be a really, it will be a really fun time and a lot of amazing chefs there and people in the industry. So, um, and thank you again, Gia. Um, it was been fabulous chatting with you and again, hope to see you soon. I'll see you in Philly. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. So my guest today is Vengia Vecchio. She's the CEO and founder of Foxglove Communications, which is has offices in Philadelphia, New Orleans, Nashville, New York City. Check out her website, foxglovecommunications.com, and follow at foxglovecoms and at gvecchio. And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are bayerpublicrelations.com, Sherry Bayer sherrybayer.com and allintheindustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. 
Thanks to my engineer today, Armin, and thanks again to Gia. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with a new show. I hope you'll tune in then. And thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.